This podcast was originally the audio for a work of the same name for the Nearly On Red YouTube channel, found at youtube.com slash c slash nearly on red. Though not intended to be a standalone podcast, viewers frequently consume my videos for their audio content only, so I have duplicated my work in this format to hopefully save people a step. A full list of content and platforms can be found at nearlyonred.com or the short link nearly.red, N-E-A-R-L-Y dot R-E-D. Enjoy! Welcome to the Not Quite Daily Show, episode one of the summer 2018 season. Today we are doing our first single subject look at Hanibado. Uh, this video will include examples and spoilers for the first four episodes. Um, this is our first look at the series, so I wanted to open with context about badminton itself, give a few basics about its rules, and how I anticipate that this will influence our story. Sports anime in general benefit from the natural structure they inherit from whatever sport they are based around. Um, sporting competitions automatically create conflict and tension between characters, they create clear goals and regular intervals for pursuing them, and the practice-match-practice-match cycle mimics the try-fail cycle that is a common storytelling tool. An athlete's growth in their sport so closely mirrors the journey of personal growth that we expect from good characterization that a writer almost has to intentionally screw up the parallel. That said, there are a lot of sports, and a lot of ways to tell a story, and a lot of ways to portray a character's journey. When looking at a story based around a sport, we should ask ourselves how the choice of sporting competition affects what kind of story can be told, how it focuses characterization, and which themes might naturally emerge. For example, there are a lot of good boxing or fighting movies. It's a great subject for character drama. Part of this is the personal stakes of our protagonists. They aren't just risking a loss, but risking their actual physical well-being. Another part of it is relatability. I might not be able to relate to the endurance required to finish a marathon, or the skill required to throw a curveball, but I can definitely relate to the desire to not get punched in the face. The visceral nature of a physical combat sport has a similarly visceral effect on the audience. Therefore, when we look at Hanebado, we should ask ourselves what about the nature of the sport of badminton informs the type of story that will unfold? To that end, I'm going to give a few brief details about the sport and its rules, um, what kind of effect this context has on the athletes, and then trace a few examples of how we can see those effects manifest in the series to this point. Now, we're not going to go over every rule here. Um, if you want the details of things like service restrictions and rotations, uh, Wikipedia can probably get you sorted in 10 minutes or so. Um, I am just going to go over what I think will be relevant to story and character and to understanding the drama inherent in any scene. The first thing is that badminton is an untimed sport. You do not play until a certain time limit is reached, but until a certain score is reached by one side or the other. A standard match is best two out of three games, and a game is won by being the first to score 21 points. However, you must win by two. So if the score is 20 to 20, then one side does not win by scoring the next point. It must score an additional point in order to make it 22 to 20. But if the losing side scores an equalizer, then two points in a row must still be scored by one side or the other. 
In official play, this will not continue indefinitely, but will end when one side reaches 30 points. So if the score is 29 to 29, then the next point does win. This is referred to as the golden point. Points are scored either by landing the shuttlecock in your opponent's court, or by having the opponent hit the shuttlecock under the top of the net or outside the boundaries of your court. There is no bouncing in badminton. Uh, the shuttlecock hitting the ground is the end of the point. Um, next is service. Um, again, we won't go over all the details. Basically, one side or the other serves to begin the point. Serves must be underhanded and must land in a certain area of the court or else the point is lost. The side that serves for any given point is the side that won the previous point. You do not have to serve to score points, but winning a point will result in your side continuing to serve until you lose a point. Unlike volleyball, in which serving is a disadvantage, or tennis, in which it is an advantage, serving in badminton is more of a toss-up. Lastly, badminton is usually played in either singles or doubles configuration, either one versus one or two versus two. Uh, most of the rules are the same between the two, the biggest difference being the court size. Um, despite a doubles match having two players on each side, there is still only one chance to return the shuttlecock each time it crosses the net. It is not a sport like volleyball in which teammates pass to one another or can make contact multiple times per side before returning it to the opponent's side. All right, so those are the details I think are relevant. Um, let's talk about what effect this game structure has on the players. First, we will talk about the mental burden of the sport, um, and then we'll talk about the unique situation created by school versus school teams. Um, there are two aspects of badminton rules that enforce a mental burden on its players. The first is its nature as score-based victory uh, rather than a time-based. This type of game structure means that no match is ever won until it is actually won. There is no garbage time in badminton. You could win the first 41 points of a match, winning the first game 21 to nothing, and then taking a 20 to nothing lead in the second game, and yet still lose. This is very different from most major sports, football, basketball, hockey, and so on, in which the game can effectively be over before it's actually won or lost. Even in situations where the game is not technically unwinnable, it's common in all timed sports for there to be a point of no return for the team that is losing. Badminton, though, does not have this situation. There is no relaxing in a match until it is completed. You cannot take your foot off the gas. In many sports, once a comfortable lead is established, a team can begin to change their strategy to play defensively, to protect the lead until the end of the game. Not so in badminton. Whether your opponent scores 33 or 3, you still need at least 42 points to win the whole match. The second aspect is that badminton is mostly a solo sport. Uh, yes, doubles and singles exist, but singles is the more demanding and usually more prestigious format. While strategy is different between the two formats, um, singles techniques translate readily to doubles. Um, it's very different than something like beach volleyball, where perfect teamwork is more important than individual ability. Unfortunately, we haven't gotten to see what an official match between schools looks like yet, so I am unsure about score weighting. Um, but if I go by US examples, then generally being good at singles is more important than being good at doubles, at least in the school versus school showdowns. Uh, and this is purely because of numbers. If you have an official team of say, six players, that creates six singles matches and three doubles matches. So if you win all the singles matches, your doubles results don't even matter. 
Now, regardless of what scoring situation we end up with, Hanebado has emphasized the head-to-head -head competition so far. Um, doubles isn't completely absent, but will likely take a back seat overall. Um, so then, the mental burden of a solo sport is that second aspect. When you are the only person on your side of the court, all of the success or failure goes through you. On one hand, this means you never have to suffer the frustration of having a great performance made irrelevant by a teammate's terrible play. Even if you are a brilliant goalkeeper or pitcher or defense, your excellence is for nothing if the rest of your team can't put points on the board. On the other hand, if you are the one having an off day, then there is no one to shore up the difference. You have to steel yourself to face every new point, regardless of how well you're playing, regardless of what you did wrong on the previous point, regardless of whatever other background stresses exist in your life. There are no substitutions or changing personnel. It's just you, to the end, win or lose. Now, these two aspects, the solo play and the score-based victory condition, feed off of each other to increase the mental burden. For example, let's say you get a huge lead on your opponent, like 18 to eight. You just need three points to win the game, whereas they need 10 in a row just to make it even. But then you hit too hard and the shuttlecock sails out of bounds. Then you have a long rally and they get a good shot in and win another point. And then you immediately screw up, make contact with the frame of the racket and hit in the net. Now the score is 18 to 11. You still have a sizable lead, but you're thinking to yourself, if you had just won those three points, the game would be over. If you'd won even one of them, you would be a third closer to victory. On the flip side, your opponent suddenly sees hope. They immediately play with more confidence. Their success encourages them at the same moment that it discourages you. Making a couple of silly mistakes starts to get into your head. You, you take less risks, you play more conservatively. Yet this only serves to take the pressure off of your opponent, and the more points in a row that they win, the bigger the swing and momentum will be. Those 18 points you already won will be completely meaningless if you can't get the remaining three. And the pressure of that fact makes getting those three all the more difficult. Now, in a team sport, different players will be up or down, playing well or poorly, confident or insecure at various points. The differences even out over the team as a whole. For a solo sport, though, there is no evening out. You carry 100% of the burden for things turning against you. And since there is never a point that the match is safely won until it's actually over, you never get to relax your mental fortitude. You never have a moment when someone else has the ball, or your part of the team is on the sidelines or in the dugout, or the puck is on the other side of the ice. It's always on you, every moment of every point. And what's more, every lost point is potentially the beginning of you losing the whole match. You see collapses like this all the time and yet your teammates can do almost nothing to aid you. You are completely alone out on the court. I'm not speaking from conjecture, by the way. Uh, my alter ego played varsity tennis all through high school, and tennis is about the closest sport to badminton. Uh, the single biggest difference between the experience of tennis and every other sport that my alter ego played is that mental burden, that inability to ever relax or pass the responsibility to someone else. That experience also prepares me to talk about the weirdness of school versus school competition in racket sports. And what I mean by weirdness is that the nature of the format required for schools to play as teams means that most of your time as a player will see you competing against your own teammates. 
And I don't mean practicing against them, but actually competing. The reason is how a team is assembled. You obviously don't just pile all of the athletes on each side of the net. It's a solo sport or doubles at the most. So what do you do when you play another school? Do all the players from each school simply enter a small tournament and play until there's a champion? Like say when a nation sends more than one sprinter to the Olympics for the 100 yard dash and they all race against one another? Well, no. Typically, you rank yourselves within your own team and then face your same rank on the other team. To use the example of six official players again, since I don't yet know the real number, each of you would be ranked with one another, one through six on your own school's roster. When you face another squad, your number one player faces their number one player, your number two faces their number two, and so on. Um, a similar ranking takes place within your doubles teams, um, although those are usually arranged by coaches to maximize effectiveness rather than emerging from challenging one another. Anyway, every match won becomes a point for your school and the most points wins. Having a single great player and a lot of mediocre players does not make for a strong school team, as it does you little good to win the number one matchup and then lose the other five. This means if your strongest player wants to win as a school, they will be invested in trying to bring the other teammates closer to their level. If they only care about their own glory though, then they may not care about the team results and focus instead on their matchups against the number ones on other teams. It's a different problem when the talent is more evenly distributed. You might have three or four players competing for the prestige of that number one ranking, which means challenging each other in matches to try to secure the top spot. Yes, having that kind of real competition in the times between playing other schools will probably make the players stronger, but it can also erode the sense of a team entirely, or give birth to bitter rivalries and backbiting that drive players away. What's more, the value of recruiting a ringer to your school is especially pronounced. Let's say that you are already a competitive squad, and you can regularly go 3-3 three and three or 4-2 to two against other schools in your district. If you have a new player join who is good enough to be your new number one, then it shifts all of your players down a slot. Your former number one is now playing against other schools number two, your former number two playing against their number three, and so on. Adding a great player doesn't just give you an advantage in their matches, but in all your matches. This means a coach can be forgiven for being especially aggressive in trying to recruit a single great player to the team. But it also means that a coach is likely to look the other way if the top player is toxic or misbehaves. In other words, a school team for badminton does not need to resemble anything like it does for team sports. All of your players could hate each other and refuse to speak or cooperate, yet if they are all individually good enough, you could still dominate every other school. Thus, for badminton, the idea of team is a little more nebulous than it might be for another sport. So, the competition between teammates adds tension all by itself. Uh, the inherent loneliness of solo sports further isolates individual players from each other, and the mental burden of the game structure means that a player's swings in fortune, mood, or confidence have a far greater impact than they might for a more team-based game. Now, does that sound like a perfect storm for drama, or what? So then, that is a situation that Hanabado's choice of badminton presents to us as setting. So let's now quickly run through our first four episodes and just highlight a few moments where we can see this bear out. The most obvious examples of that mental burden come from Nagisa's loss of confidence and concentration in the opening arc. 
her complete dismemberment six months before the series begins, kicks off a downward spiral in which she both redoubles all her efforts to improve and has lost confidence in her game. It's exactly because there is no one else to share blame that it impacts her so severely. The loss would not be so devastating if it was simply her team that lost. Instead, losing was deeply personal. As a player, she becomes preoccupied with her smash, as she knows it's her strongest weapon, but she's also lost faith in it because it seems so ineffectual against Ayano. As team captain, she externalizes this frustration on the other members, especially those she doesn't think are working as hard as she is. There is a theme of hard work versus natural ability here as well, um, but that will have to be a topic for another day. Nagisa's loss of confidence then comes from her on-court performance. Ayano's, on the other hand, comes from external stresses in her life. She is basically fine as long as she isn't thinking. Whenever unpleasant thoughts intrude, her game immediately breaks down. This happens in the rematch with Nagisa, it happens in the rally against the target, and then especially in the match with Kaoruko. It's not a sudden loss of talent or energy or anything physical. Rather, her entire will evaporates. In a sport with such a mental burden, your willpower and concentration are everything. When she loses them, she might as well not be playing. Now, Nagisa has already regained a lot of her composure thanks to the coach's intervention. This is especially evident when they meet the Frey girls in the fourth episode. The team is completely intimidated by the captain and the regulars and their unity, except for Nagisa, who greets them with confidence and addresses the captain as an equal. Even though we don't actually get to see it, she apparently wins her singles match off screen despite how good the school is supposed to be. Notably, she didn't actually need to rematch and beat Ayano in order to get her game back. Just having her effort recognized and validated put her back in a mental space where she could compete once again. Ayano, though, isn't out of the woods at all. Thanks to Elena's amazing intervention, she will get a chance to face her turmoil alongside the other club members. Um, and I suspect a lot of the series will revolve around this, so we will leave it alone for now. Uh, let's see. Um, there is also the situation created by having teammates compete against one another uh, that we mentioned before. This is actually subverted in the case of Nagisa and Ayano. Um, the opening episode and its cliffhanger suggests that they will be rivals. It even gives us a parallel in the guy's tennis match between the older captain and the defeat he feels at the hands of the popular young prodigy on his team. This seems like it is foreshadowing the conflict that could develop between Nagisa and Ayano. Instead, each of them is more haunted by personal trials than some athletic rivalry. If anything, Nagisa has been a support to Ayano, and I suspect that this is just the beginning of that support. Now this is completely different than Ayano's experience in her youth with Kaoruko. When she quits the badminton club because they aren't good enough, she's excited about this Kaoruko girl and her new team. Instead of being the positive experience she expects though, Kaoruko goes to extreme lengths just so she won't lose their competition. This, even though they are teammates. When Ayano's mother appears to leave because of this event, the idea of being on a team is poisoned in her mind. Now, I suspect the situation with her mother is more complicated than that, but that doesn't matter as far as Ayano's mental anguish is concerned. Um, only her perception of reality matters here, not actual reality. Anyway, it is no surprise that Kaoruko showing back up makes Ayano immediately want to abandon the badminton club. Changing her perception of the concept of team is going to be a work in progress. The Frey girls seem to have their own intra-team competitive conflicts as well. 
a girl named Hina needles Connie, and the comments from others indicate that it's an ongoing thing between them. Connie herself seems indifferent or even openly hostile to her teammates. And yet, when she and Ayano were looking for the convenience store, she was nothing of the sort. She was friendly and easygoing. She shared her candy with Ayano and they worked together to find the store. She's even curious about what Ayano means about a team being fun. It's possible this is much closer to her real personality and the need to be competitive with everyone in the context of badminton is what causes her other behavior. Now, this conversation they start to have about what a team is will likely be an ongoing thematic pattern, so we aren't going to try to completely decode it right now. Um, the fourth episode is the beginning of Ayano warming to that idea at all, though. Um, the scene on the bus with the girls playing with each other's hair and taking a photo together is a kind of bonding that Ayano has never associated with badminton. The fact that she is the one looking for the convenience store is evidence of the change that is beginning in her. She is risk-adverse and somewhat meek. Putting herself out there to do an errand for the team is her attempts to contribute. It's a tiny little toe in the water, sure, but it's a start. That the creators are erecting Connie as both an antagonist to this idea and a connection to the trauma around her mother should signal to us that Ayano's understanding of team will be a central part of her character journey. The fact that badminton can accommodate an athlete who disparages the idea of a team and one who embraces it gives this journey a different context than if the story had been centered around a different sport. And I guess that's the point I really wanted to make over these last 20 minutes or so. Um, so that is the story context that the choice of badminton creates for us in this anime. Exploring the concept of team is not new grounds for a sports anime necessarily, but badminton as setting gives it a little twist since being a good teammate is more a matter of choice than necessity. Title music by Russell J. Crowe, other music licensed from the artists at Audio Jungle. Script, performance, and editing by Theta. Theta is played by Redacted. Original video can be found at youtube.com slash C slash nearlyonred. And a full list of credits is available at nearlyonred.com. Until next time, thanks for everything.